This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Now you can receive your first audiobook for free just by signing up as an Audible member. Download your first audiobook and even if you cancel, that book is yours to keep at Audible.com. Thanks for joining me here today. I hope you're nice and relaxed, and if not, well then just sit back, or if you're standing or laying down, and just let this story wash on over you. This is a part two. We dived into a, uh, the life and times of this outlaw hero, villain, person in Australian culture called Ned Kelly. Now, I do suggest that you go back and you know, have a listen to that one if you haven't already. Because there may be some you know spoilers and stuff going on there. But if not, then welcome. Now, normally we would have some you know news about some stuff that's happening around the world, but I really want to just dive into this and, you know, get going. Because we're actually at a moment where it's it's pretty gripping. So if you're trying to go to sleep, apologies, you may be sitting around just hovering over your phone. or Well, actually, the headphones will be in your ears, but metaphorically hovering over your, your phone or tablet. You could even have a desktop computer on the side of your, your bed, whatever it is. Right now, it's actually pretty interesting, so I'm going to try and, you know, talk about this in the most calming way possible, but I will confess that when I started down this route of sort of retelling the times of, you know, Ned Kelly, knowing that he, you know, I knew the history, I knew the broad history, it was told to me throughout the years, and certainly it's it's taught in schools and stuff like that, I will confess to not really paying attention in school. There were a lot of distractions around. But reading through this and the account of what happened, it's just remarkable on both sides of this issue how much wrongdoing there was. Now, I'm not going to give you my opinions. This is not this, this podcast and stuff like that. I'm just going to tell this in, well, the most relaxing way possible. So, where are we up to? Ned Kelly and his gang are in a forest and they've recently just shot one of the police officers. For the details, you know, go back to to the first one. It's all there. McIntyre, after all this, asked whether he was to be shot. There was another police officer sort of, you know, hostage. Ned turns around and says, and by the way, I won't do any sort of, 
you know, Ned Kelly accents. I think he was Irish of, of origin, so I won't do that. For the purpose of this entire podcast, everybody is going to sound like me. Because yeah, that, that, that won't go very well. If we start to do an Irish accent, see, this is not going to go very well at all. Because no longer does Ned Kelly sound like Ned Kelly. He sounds like Father O'Reilly. So I won't do it. I'll just get back to this Australian accent. Right, here we go. As I said, McIntyre asked whether he was to be shot, and Kelly replied, No. Why should I want to shoot you? Could I not have done it half an hour ago if I wanted? He added. At first I thought you were Constable Flood, and if you had been, I would have roasted you in the fire. Kelly asked if the police came out to shoot him. No, replied McIntyre. We came out to apprehend you. What? asked Kelly. Brings you out, uh, brings you out here at all. It's a shame to see a big, fine, strapping fellow like you in a lazy, loafing billet like policemen. I love the language these guys have, right? It's just, yeah, so gentlemanly. McIntyre asked um, what they were would do if he induced his comrades to surrender. And Kelly stated, I'll shoot no man if he holds up his hands. And that would uh, detain them all night, as he wanted a sleep, and let them go next morning without their guns or horses. McIntyre said he would induce them to surrender if Kelly kept his word, and added that one of the two had many children. Kelly said, you can depend on us. Kelly stated that Fitzpatrick was the cause of all this, that his mother um, and the rest of the unjustly lagged at Beechworth. He told McIntyre to leave the police force. McIntyre agreed, saying that he had thought about it for some time due to bad health. Ned asked McIntyre why their search party was carrying so much ammunition. Interesting question. McIntyre replied that it was to shoot kangaroos. At about 5.30pm, Kelly then heard the approach of Kennedy and Scanlan. The four gang members concealed themselves behind some logs and one in a tent. They forced McIntyre to sit on a log and Kelly threatened, Mind I have a rifle for you if you give them any alarm. Kennedy and Scanlan, Scanlan, sorry, S-C-A-N-L-A-N, Scanlan, rode into the camp. McIntyre went forward and said, Sergeant, I think you had better dismount and surrender. As if you are surrounded. I can almost hear him, you know, tap his nose when he says that. Kelly at the same time called out, put up your hands. Kennedy appeared to think it was Lonigan who called out and that a jest was intended for he smiled and put his hands on his revolver's case. He was instantly fired at, but not hit. Kennedy then realized the hopelessness of his position, jumped off his horse and begged for his life. 
It's all right. Stop it. Stop it. Scanlan jumped down and tried to make for a tree. But before he could unsling his rifle, he was shot and killed. This account has been disputed by the great-grandson of Sergeant Kennedy, who claims the story has been altered down the years in order to embellish the Kelly myth. He claims Kennedy was uh, wounded twice in a hopeless fight, captured and then murdered two hours later. McIntyre, believing that the gang intended to shoot the whole party, fled on Kennedy's horse. Several shots were fired at McIntyre as he dashed down the creek, but none reached him. The rifles apparently being empty um, at that stage, and only the revolvers available. Ned later wrote that he never intended to kill McIntyre, as I did not like to shoot him after he had surrendered. McIntyre galloped through the scrub for two miles, and then his horse, evidently wounded, became exhausted, Suffering from a severe fall during his escape, with his clothes in tatters, McIntyre concealed himself in a wombat hole until dark. Wow, a wombat hole. They're, they're big, but they're not that big. Like, unless it was a massive wombat, and they do exist, but... I can imagine getting two you know, legs down really close together, like you're about to hop into a sleeping bag, that type of thing. But getting inside an entire wombat's hole? What if the wombat's there? They... Hmm. They're kind of gentle creatures, but any creature on the planet, if it feels threatened, well, then it's no longer gentle, is it? Hmm. Well, anyway, he hid inside that, you know, the wombat's hole. So while he's in the wombat's hole, he also takes note of, you know, the setting sun for, you know, direction. And then after dark, he set about to strike the Benella Road by trekking west, guided by a star. After crossing a number of streams, his feet became, became chafed and had to walk with one of his boots off. After a rest, he used a match to illuminate a small compass. He travelled about 20 miles, 36 kilometres, until he reached a farmhouse outside of Mansfield. On Sunday afternoon, he then travelled by buggy to Mansfield and then directly to the residence of Sub-Inspector Putris. Two hours after McIntyre reported the murder of the troopers, Putris set out of R for camp, accompanied by McIntyre, Constable Alleywood, Dr. Reynolds and five townspeople. They had only two rifles. They reached the camp with the assistance of a guide, Mr. Monk, at 2 a.m., there they found the bodies of Scanlon and Lonigan, as well as the tent burnt and possessions looted or destroyed. The post-mortem, Dr. Reynolds, showed that Lonigan had received seven wounds, one through the eyeball. Ow. Scanlon's body had four shot marks with the fatal wound caused by rifle ball, which went clean through the lungs. Additional shots had been fired into the dead body so that all of the gang members might equally be implicated. Ned later refuted this, saying the coroner should uh, be consulted. No trace had yet been discovered of Kennedy, and the same day as Scanlon and Lonigan's funeral, 
another failed search party was launched. His body was found a few days later by Henry G. Sparrow, 700 metres northwest from the campsite near Germans Creek. The site of Kennedy's murder was claimed to be rediscovered in 2006. Well, things are getting serious now, aren't they? We've got ourselves a situation where they've come into you know, the forest and... Well, Kennedy's gang, as righteous as they are, murder is murder. And so now the government's going to do something about it. We're sort of building here for a big showdown. And it's somewhat the showdown that really sets this scene apart from, well, a lot of other crimes. In the first part of this you know, this podcast, we, in Ned Kelly part one, sorry, we sort of asked the question, was he a villain or was he representing something different? Was, was, was he just a murderer or was he a victim of police brutality and thus defending himself? And so as we go through this entire thing, it's almost like we're sort of hearing, you know, the evidence for and against. It'd be very interesting to hear what you think about that forest altercation. Is he a murderer or was he just defending himself? I'm not going to judge. I'm just here to report the facts. So it got serious. There was a proclamation by Governor George Bowen declaring Ned and Dan Kelly outlaws. In response to the public outrage at the murder of the police officers, the reward was set to £500, about $20 billion in Australian money today, and on 31st of October 1878, the Victorian Parliament passed the Felons Apprehension Act, coming into effect on November uh, 1st, 1878, which outlawed the gang and made it possible for anyone to shoot them. There was no need for the outlaws to be arrested or for there to be a trial upon apprehension. The act was based on the 1865 Act passed in New South Wales which declared Ben Hall and his gang outlaws. The act also penalised anyone who harboured, gave, quote, any aid, shelter or sustenance to the outlaws or withheld or gave false information about them to the authorities. Punishment was imprisonment with or without hard labour for such a period not exceeding 15 years. With this new act in place on the 4th of November 1878, warrants were issued against the four members of the Kelly Gang. The deadline for their voluntary surrender was set at the 12th of November, 1878. Okay, so things have gotten serious. We, well, there's a massive reward. Essentially, everybody is allowed to shoot them on sight. God, you'd want to get the ID correct though, wouldn't you? If you've seen photos of Ned Kelly, he kind of looks like a lot of other people. You got yourself... 
weirdly enough, if you see the photos today and do do Google it, for the longest time his look was, well, it was foreign. It was a massive beard and slick back hair and all that kind of stuff. And we'd look at that and just go, wow, that's, that's a crazy look. And then somewhere around 2013, 14, of course, styles changed. And you look at him now and he looks like he could be a pretty cool barista in one of the cafes down here in Melbourne. But I imagine a lot of other people would, you know, look like that at the time. And they've just given people the ability to say, you know what? I think that's Ned Kelly or the other gang members. And they can shoot them legally. Crazy, huh? What could go wrong? At midday, on the 9th of December, 1878, the Kelly gang held up Young Husband's Station at Faithful Creek near the town of Euroa. Ned assured the people that they had nothing to fear and only asked for food for themselves and their horses. An employee named Fitzgerald, who was eating dinner at the time, looked at Ned toying nonchalantly with a revolver and said, Well, of course, if a gentleman want any refreshments, they must have it. The other three outlaws, having attended to the horses, joined Ned in imprisoning the men in the storeroom. No interference was offered to the women. Late in the afternoon, the manager of the station, Mr. McCauley, returned and was promptly held up. Near sunset, Hawker James Gloucester arrived at the station to camp for the night. Earlier, he brushed off warnings that the place was held up by the Kelly gang, and when accosted by Ned, responded angrily and attempted to get the revolver from his wagon. Ned threatened to shoot him, saying it would be easy to do so if the Hawker did not keep a civil tongue in his head. Gloucester asked the bushranger who he was. He responded, I am Ned Kelly, son of Red Kelly, and a better man never stood in two shoes. Macaulay persuaded Gloucester to surrender, and the pair joined the other prisoners in the storeroom. The Kellys stole new suits and a revolver from Gloucester's stock as they went as they wanted to look presentable at the bank. They offered the hawker money for them, to which they refused. After sunset, the hostages were allowed some fresh air. Time passed quietly until 2am, and at the hour, the outlaws gave a peculiar whistle, and Hart and Byrne rushed from the building. Macaulay was surrounded by the bushrangers, and Kelly said, You are armed. We have found a lot of ammunition in the house. After this episode, the outlaws retired to sleep. The following afternoon, leaving Byrne in charge of the hostages, the other three axed the telegraph pole and cut the wire to sever the town's police link to Benella. Three or four railway men endeavoured to intervene, but they too were taken hostage. The bushrangers then went to the bank with a small cheque drawn by Macaulay, the bank having closed before their arrival. Ned forced the clerk to open it and cash the cheque. After taking £700 in notes, gold and silver, Ned forced the manager to open the safe 
from which the bushrangers got 1,500 pounds in paper, 300 pounds in gold, and 300 worth of gold dust, and nearly 100 dollars, 100 sorry, 100 pounds worth of silver. The reported total amount stolen was uh, 68. 10-pound notes, 67 5-pound notes, and 418 1-pound notes, and 500 in sovereigns, and 90 pounds in silver, and 30 ounces ingots of gold. The outlaws were polite and considerate to Scott's wife. Scott himself invited the outlaws to drink whiskey with him, which they did. The whole party went to young husbands where the rest of the hostages were, the evening seemed to have passed quite pleasantly. Macaulay remarked to Kelly that the police might come along, which would mean a fight. Kelly replied, I wish they would, for there is plenty of cover here. In the evening, tea was prepared, and at half past eight, the outlaws warned the hostages not to move for three hours, informing them that they were going. Just before they left, Kelly noticed that Mr. McDougall was wearing a watch and asked for it. Yeah, asked. McDougall replied that it was a gift from his dead mother. Kelly declared that he wouldn't take it under any consideration, and very soon afterwards the four outlaws left. What is unusual is that these stirrings, uh, stirring events happened without the people in the town knowing anything. The hostages left the station five hours later. In January 1879, police, under the command of Captain Standish, Superintendent Hare, and Officer Sadler, arrested all the known Kelly friends and uh, perpetrated sympathisers, a total of 23 people, including Tom Lloyd and Wild Wright, and held them without charge in the Beechworth Jail for over three months. All of the responsible men in charge of, a different, of different stations who had been a long time in Benella. The detectives and officers were all collated, collected at Benella by Captain Standish's orders. They all went into a room and were asked their names by the persons in the district whom they considered to be sympathisers. I had nothing to do with it, merely listening and taking down names that fell from the mouths, sorry, that fell from the mouths of men. Public opinion was turning against the police on the matter, and on the 22nd of April 1879, the remainders of the sympathisers were released. None were given money or transported back to their hometowns. All had to find their own way back, 25, 30 and even 50 miles on their own. The treatment of the 23 caused resentment of the government's abuse of power, that led to the condemnation of the media in the media and the groundswell for support for the gang that was a factor in their evading capture for so long. Way to win, you know, hearts and minds. According to Coonable Resident, who was who encountered the Kellys at Glen Rowan, Ned had heard that an individual named Sullivan had given evidence and that he had travelled by train from Melbourne to Rutherglen. The Kelly gang then followed him there, 
but was told that he went to Urana across the border in New South Wales. By the time they got to Urana, Sullivan had left for Wagga Wagga. They followed him there, but lost sight of him. Kelly thought that he might have travelled to Hay, so they took off in that direction but later gave up their chase. On their return home, they passed through Gerildery and the gang then decided to rob a bank. According to J.J. Keneally, however, the gang arrived at Gerildery having crossed the Murray River at Baramini. Baramine, sorry. The group had heard of uh, crossing there from where they could swim their horses but did not know where the landing place was on the opposite side of the river. So Tom Lloyd investigated. The river was guarded by you know, border police. After unsuccessfully trying to cross on his own, Lloyd employed the help of an owner of a hotel nearby who pulled him across in a boat with Lloyd's horse paddling behind. After reporting the trip back to the rest of the own gang, the group appropriated the boat to get across in two trips. Dan Kelly, Steve Hart, reached Davidson's Hotel two miles south of Gerildery on Saturday the 2nd of February, 1879. In time for tea, while the others waited in another area. At about midnight, on the 8th of February, the gang surrounded the Drilderie police station. Ned rode to the front and shouted for the policemen to come out, claiming there was a drunken brawl at Davidson's Hotel. Constable George Devine and Henry Richards emerged and asked the stranger for more information. Once Ned established there was no other policeman inside, the gang held them up and locked them in the cell. Mary Devine's wife and their children were kept hostage inside the house as Ned stole all the firearms and ammunition. After this, he let them return to sleep, and with the rest of the gang stayed in the dining room until the morning. There was a chapel in the courthouse a hundred yards from the barracks. Mrs. Devine's duty was to prepare the courthouse for mass. The next day, Sunday, she was allowed to do so, but was accompanied by one of the Kellys. At about 10am, Kelly remained in the courthouse and helped Mrs. Devine prepare the altar and dust the flam- dust, sorry, dust the forms. When this was done, Kelly escorted her back to the barracks, where the door was closed and the blinds pulled to give the impression that the Devines were out. Hart and Dan Kelly, dressed in police uniforms, walked to uh, and from the stables during the day without attracting notice. On Monday morning, Byrne brought two horses to be shod, but the blacksmith suspected something strange in the manner. So he noted the horses' brands, according to Keneally, and blacksmith was struck by the quality of these so-called police horses, and thus noted their brands. According to also in this version, the shoeing of the horses was charged to the government of New South Wales. At about 10am, the Kellys, with their hostage Constable Richards, went from the barracks, closely followed on horseback by Hart and Byrne. They all went to the Royal Hotel, where Cox, the landlord, told Richards that his companions were the Kellys. Ned Kelly said they wanted rooms at the Royal and revealed his intentions to rob the bank. 
Hart and Byrne rode to the back and told the groom to stable their horses, but not to give them any feed. Hart went into the kitchen uh, of the hotel, a few yards from the back entrance of the bank. Byrne then entered the rear of the bank, where he met the accountant, Mr. Living, who told him to use the front entrance. Byrne displayed his revolver and induced him to surrender. Keneally wrote, The shock caused Living to stutter, and it had been alleged that the stuttered for the, you know, that he stuttered for the rest of his life. Byrne then walked him and Mackey, the junior accountant, into the bar where Dan Kelly was on guard. Ned Kelly secured the bank manager, Mr. Tarleton, who was ordered to open the safes. When this was done, he would uh, he was put in the other. So he was put with the others, and all were liberated at a quarter to three. After the manager had been secured, Ned Kelly took Living back to the bank and asked him how much money they had. Living admitted about 600 to 700 pounds. Living then handed uh, him to the teller's cash, 691 pounds. Kelly asked if they had any more money. Living answered no. Kelly tried to open the safe's treasure's drawers, and one of the keys was given to him, but he needed a second one. Byrne wanted to break it open with a sledgehammer, but Kelly got the key from the other teller and found £1,650. Well, you know, he tried his bluff. Making for a total of £2,141 stolen from the bank, Kelly noticed a deed box. The group then went to the hotel where Kelly burned three to four bank books containing mortgage documents in an effort to erase the debts and create losses for the banks, though not um, not realising that some had copies held by the title officers in Sydney. Well, you tried. Before leaving the hotel, Kelly made a speech to the hostages, mainly on the Fitzpatrick incident and the stringy bark killings. He then placed his revolver on the bar and announced, Anyone here may take it and shoot me dead, but if I'm shot, Derildery shall swim in its own blood. As the hotel's roughs cheered Kelly on, he learned that Hart had earlier stolen a watch from the local's Methodist clergyman, Reverend J.B. Gribble, and forced him to return it. The bushranger then went to some of the other hotels, treating everyone civilly, and had drinks. Hart took a new saddle from the saddlers, two splendid police horses were taken, and other horses were wanted. But the residents claimed that they belonged to the women, and MacDougall, in order to keep his race mare, uh, protested that he was uh, comparatively a poor man, and Kelly relented. The telegraph operators were also incarcerated. Byrne took possession of the office and destroyed all of the telegrams sent that day and cut all the wires. The group left about 7pm in an unknown direction. The disarmed and unhorsed police had no other means of following the gang. So they made their getaway. So we've got ourselves a situation where, on one hand, you know, he's hasn't been that nice. There's been some deaths. 
And on the other hand, during the situations where he was stealing someone and then so someone, something, and then somebody said, well, that was kind of a gift from, you know, a past one. Well, then he's like, oh, okay, you know, that's cool. You can keep it. That's, that's okay. I keep thinking what would happen if this was happening today. And the, you know, make no mistake, he is a criminal. He broke the law. That's just it. But this is the bit I'm telling you about with the fascination from the Australian people. Because yes, he was a criminal. But he was also doing these things as well. And he was also highlighting what was going on with the establishment. They locked up over 20 people for no charge for three months. And again, imagine if that was happening today. Now, this is where it takes an interesting turn. Because Ned Kelly wasn't, you know, he wasn't happy enough to just have this, you know, let lie. Oh no, he wanted to sort of plead his side of the story. And this is another little element that really highlights or propels Ned to be the most notorious bushranger in Australian history. It's called the Gerildery Letter. Now, I need to say that the town of Gerildery does actually exist. It's it's a lovely place. It really is. Um, I've always remarked about the the town names you know, of Australia, uh, especially country Australia. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is, is Boominumina. That does actually exist. So yeah, so so a lot of a lot of history. However, this is where it takes a turn because Ned wanted to, you know, put his side of the story across. He wanted to to plead his case, and to do so, he was going to write. Well, he was going to dictate a letter that he wanted well the not the world to see and when i say the world you know the the rural victoria basically just the government he was an angry angry man and he wanted to make sure that people understood exactly how he felt so here we go the Drillery Letter. Okay, before I begin, can you just imagine, you know, you've got, got the criminal, and he's, he's committed murder, he's robbed banks, and just during this period, halfway through, he just stops and goes, you know what? You need to hear my side of the story. And, and in doing so, he did this, you know, with the letter. So, let's begin. Months prior to arriving in Drilderie, Kelly composed a lengthy letter with the aim of tracing his path to outlawly, God, that is hard to say, outlawly, justifying his actions and outlining the injustices he and his family suffered at the hands of the police. He also declared the treatment of the poor selector families by Victorian squattery, and in an escalating promise of revenge and retribution, invokes a mythical tradition of Irish rebellion. 
against what he calls the Tyrino... This this paragraph's full of just words I can't say. Um, Tyrinoism of the English yoke. Dictated to Byrne. It is known as the Gerildery Letter. And is handwritten is a handwritten document of fifty six pages, seven thousand three hundred and ninety one words. While holding up Gerildery, Kelly gave the letter what he called a bit of my life to Edwin Living, a local bank accountant counted, and demanded that he deliver it to the editor of the Gerildery and Urine Gazette for publication. Due to the political suppression, only excerpts were published in the press based on a copy transcribed by John Hanlon, owner of the Eight Mile Hotel in Deniliquin. There's also an interesting note. Uh, Deniliquin, or Denny, as it's known by the local people, um, there's a sign out the front when you go to drive in. It has a picture of two adult rabbits and a bunch of other smaller rabbits. And the town slogan is, Do it in Denny. I mean... Now, of course, it's been many years since I've, I've driven past that, many years, but that was a major, major just laugh as he would drive in, and that that was approved, council approved, bang, do it in Denny. So if you ever feel like doing the the Ned Kelly tourist run, make sure that you go to you know, Deniliquin and make sure that you get your photo taken in front of that sign. I don't know, hashtag send me email or whatever, just it's hilarious. And then do it in Denny. Why not, right? It's one of the most romantic places on earth. Deniliquin. Anyway, John Hanlon, owner of the Eight Mile Hotel in Deniliquin. The entire letter was rediscovered and published in 1930. The letter was Kelly's second attempt at writing a chronicle of his life and times. The first, known as the Cameron Letter, was sent to Donald Cameron a member of the Victorian Parliament in December 1878. Shorter than the Derildery letter, it too was intended for a wide readership, but only a synopsis was published in the press. The original Derildery letter was donated to the State Library of Victoria in 2000, and Hanlon's transcript is held at Canberra's National Museum of Australia. According to the historian Alex McDermott, Kelly inserted himself into history on his own terms, with his own voice. We hear the living speaker in a way that no other document in our history achieves. It has been interpreted as a proto-Republican manifesto. For others, it is a murderous, maniacal rant. So is it a proto-Republican manifesto or a murderous, maniacal rant? and remarkable insight into Kelly's grandiosity. Noted for his unorthodox grammar, the letters reaching delirious poetics. Kelly's language being hyperbolic, elusive, hallucinatory, full of striking metaphors and images. His invective and sense of humour are also present in one well-known passage he calls the Victorian Police. A parcel of big, ugly, fat-necked, wombat-headed, big-bellied, magpie-legged, narrow-hipped, splore-footed son of Irish bailiffs or English landlords. 
the letter closes. Kelly calls for justice for his family and for the other poor Irish families who had settled in the northeast of Victoria. He also demands that squatters share their property and wealth with the poor. The Geraldry letter exposes pro-Irish and anti-British attitudes. In describing the brutalisation of the Irish convicts in Australia, Kelly paraphrases lines from A Convict's Tour of Hell. And the convicts lament on the death of Captain Logan, poems attributed to Frank the poet, Francis McNamara, a convict who was imprisoned in Port Arthur at the same time as John Red Kelly, Ned's father. It is speculated that Red Kelly passed on McNamara's poetry to his son. I've been down to Port Arthur, by the way, um, down in Tasmania, which is... uh, Yeah, Australia has has a lot of, you know, dark times, and one of the dark times was basically, you know, during the 17th and 18th centuries, where we were a dumping ground for criminals from, uh, from essentially from England. And down in Port Arthur was one of the most notorious uh, prisons. It really was. Worth a visit, it really is. Um, but it's, it's, it's a stark reminder of, of how bad things were, you know, down there. So what became of the Geraldry letter? Two copies were made of Ned Ned Kelly's letter, one by Republican John Hanlon, the other one by the government clerk. The original and both handwritten copies, you know, have survived. So, he's written a copy of a letter, published, you know, it's been printed in the newspaper. What do you think is going to happen now? Well, in response to that, uh, to the derogatory raid and letter, the New South Wales government and several banks collectively issued a £4,000 ransom for the gang's capture, dead or alive. The largest reward offered in the colony, since 5000 was placed on the heads of the outlaw Clark brothers in 1867. The Victorian government matched the offer for the Kelly gang, bringing the total amount to £8,000. Again, $24 billion in you know, today's money. Or two bitcoins. Just keeping it relevant in case you know someone's listening to that in this in 20 years' time. The Bush Ranger's largest ever reward. The board of officers, which include Captain Standish, Sup's Hare, and Sandlier, centralized all decisions about any search for the Kelly Gang. The reward money had demoralized effects on them. The capture of the Kellys was desired by these officers, but they were very jealous as to the whereabouts um, they themselves would come in when the reward money would be allotted. This led to very serious quarrels amongst the heads. From early March in 1879 to June 1880, nothing was heard of the gang's whereabouts, as Thomas Aubrey wrote in 1953's Mirror article. In the months after the drilled, after drilledery, public opinion turned sharply against Commissioner Standish and the 300 officers and men of the police and artillery corps who crowded into towns of the northeastern Victoria. Critics were quick to point out that the brave constables took good care to remain in the towns, leaving the outlaws almost complete freedom of the bush. 
their natural home. That's pretty witty, isn't it? Yeah, you're really comfortable inside of the towns, aren't you? They're out in the bush, so why aren't you searching out there? Maybe the police were checking whether the Kelly gang were frequenting the pubs, you know, around sunset, just to make sure that they weren't there, um, and, and probably other barbers and, and stuff during the day, just to make sure that they were not getting their hair cut or relaxing in a pub. A party of troopers participating in the hunt for the Kelly gang amid low public confidence in the ability of the police, wrote Thomas Aubrey. Many believed that the gang had already made their escape to another colony, while their pursuers wandered about Victoria, receiving, but never earning double pay and considerable, quote-unquote, danger money. The gang, in the meantime, were comfortably camped in the hills, near Kelly Farm at Eleven Mile Creek, where they discussed police efforts and their plans for their future. In February 1879, Captain Standish made a request to the Queensland Police Commissioner, David Thompson Seymour, to send a section of native police troopers to Victoria in the aid for the search for the Kelly gang. The request was granted with Sub-Inspector Stanhope O'Connor, Constable Tom King, and six Aboriginal troopers named Sambo, Barney, Johnny, Jimmy, Jack, and Hero being developed, uh, being deployed to Victoria. O'Connor and his troopers, at the time of the request, were in active service in the Cooktown region conducting punitive expeditions against Indigenous communities and had recently massacred 30 people near Cape Bedford. The ability of the native police troopers to locate Kelly was hampered early on with Sambo dying of pneumonia not long after arriving in the police barracks in Bonella. Furthermore, Standish was fearful that if the Queensland contingent were to locate Kelly quickly, they would make the Victorian police appear incompetent, so he obstructed and withheld information from O'Connor's force. Late in March 1879, Kelly's sister Kate and Margaret asked the captain of the Victorian Cross how much he would charge to take four to five gentlemen friends, quote-unquote, to California from Queenscliff. On the 31st of March, an unidentified man arranged an appointment with the captain of the general post office to give a definite answer for the cost. The captain contacted police, who placed a large number of detectives in plain clothes, um, plain clothes police throughout the building. The man failed to appear. There is no evidence that Kelly's sisters were inquiring on behalf of the gang, and was reported in the Argus as without foundation. According to Tom Lloyd, the gang frequently discussed their plans for the future, as he suggested they go to Queensland, one at a time, where they could join up again. He felt that a few years in the tropical climate would render them unrecognisable. The gang came to the conclusion, however, that they would be forever estranged there, and would lack the kind of wholehearted support that they have been getting in Victoria. And that their best recourse was to resolve their issues with the Victorian and New South Wales state governments. In late 1879, Kelly agreed to be interviewed in person by journalist J. F. Archibald of the Sydney Daily Telegraph, but it fell through when the newspaper refused to run the story. On the 9th of February 1880, the felons 
Apprehension Act of 1878 lapsed with the dissolution of Berry uh, Parliament and the gang's outlaw status and their arrest warrants expired with it. While Ned and Dan still had a prior warrant outstanding for the attempted murder of Fitzpatrick, technically, Hart and Byrne were free men. Although the, pol- uh, the police could still reissue the murder warrants. So, for a short period of time, they were free men. In April 1880, a notice of withdrawal of reward was posted by the government. It stated that after 20 uh, July 1880, the government would absolutely cancel and withdraw the offer for reward. So the you know, the arrest warrants had been cancelled. Well, they could be reissued, but they were essentially free men. You think they would take their, you know, their blessings and 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 you know run. However, uh, investigations were continuing, and just when you thought that it was going to, you know, peter out into nothing, strap in because it's about to get pretty interesting. Uh, this is this is you've got the you've got the the drama, you've got the letter, but that's not enough to maintain this mystery or this man and the myth um, for hundreds and hundreds of years. What happens next is what cements him into history. So, um, yeah, sit back, lay back, relax. It's it's, it's going to get interesting. The Glen Rowan Affair. During the Kelly outbreak, police watch parties monitored houses belonging to the relatives of the gang, including that of Byrne's mother in the Woolshed Valley near Beechworth. The police used the house of her neighbour, former Greta mob member and lifelong friend of Byrne, Aaron Sherritt, as a base of operations, sleeping in it during the day and keeping watch from the nearby caves at night. Sherritt accepted police payments for camping with the watch parties and for providing information on the bush rangers' activities. While many policemen suspected him of being a double agent for the gang, a detective, Michael Ward, planned to bring the bushrangers out of hiding by spreading rumours that Sherritt's true loyalties lay with the police. Convinced that he was a traitor, the gang decided to murder Sherritt as part of their own plan once they boasted would, quote, astonish not only the Australian colonies, but the whole world. On June, you know, twenty sixth, eighteen eighty, Dan and Bird, Dan and Byrne, rode into the Woolshed Valley that evening, and they kidnapped Anton Wick, a German-born market gardener who lived near Sherrod, reassuring him that he would not be hurt if, you know, he obeyed their orders. And while Dan went to the front door of the Sherrod's hut, Byrne forced Wick to knock on the back door and call out. "What do you want?" asked Sherrod. I'm not going to do the accents again. Prompted by Byrne, Wick replied that he had lost his way. Sherrod opened the door and joked with his, the neighbour as Belle Sherrod, his wife, told him to, you know, to give him directions. As Sherrod raised his arm to point uh, the way, he hesitated, saying, Who's that? Byrne then fired two shots at Sherrod, staggering back, having been hit in the neck, severing his jugular. 
Ugh. Byrne followed Sherrod into the hut and fired again, hitting him in the chest. Sherrod collapsed and died within a few minutes. And as he lay there, he and his wife and, his, uh, and her mother, Ellen, you know, screaming in terror, Byrne told them, That bastard will never put me away again. Sorry, I couldn't resist. After ordering Ellen to unlock the front door, Dan and Byrne used Bell as a human shield as he fired into the bedroom where he knew four policemen were hiding. Robert Alexander, Henry Armstrong, Thomas Dowling, and William Duros. Byrne sent Bell in to uh, tell them to come out, but they pulled her to the floor. The outlaws then took Ellen outside. Byrne placed uh, kindling around the hut and promised to roast, quote-unquote, everyone inside. He asked for Ellen for kerosene, but she pleaded with him, saying, for God's sake, my girl's in there. Then uh, get her out and bring those bloody traps with her, replied Byrne. Ellen went back inside, and she too was pulled onto the floor. The outlaws yelled more threats, when uh, then released Wick, and then rode off. Superintendent Hare later wrote, it was doubtless the most fortunate occurrence that Aaron was shot by the outlaws. It was impossible to have reclaimed him and the government of the colony would not have assisted him in any way. And he would have gone back into the old course of life and probably become a bushranger himself. The gang estimated that the policeman inside a sheriff's hut would relay the news of his murder to Beechworth by early Sunday morning, prompting a special police train to be sent up from Melbourne. They also surmised that the train would collect reinforcements in Benella before continuing through Glenrowan, a small town in the Warby Ranges. There the gang planned to wreck the train and shoot dead any survivors, then ride up uh, to the unpoliced Benella, where they would rob the banks, set fire to the courthouse, blow up the police barracks, release anyone imprisoned in the jail, and, quote, generally play havoc with the entire town, before returning to the bush. While Byrne and Dan were in the Woolshed Valley, Ned and Hart tried, but failed to damage the track at Glen Rowan. So they forced line repairers camped nearby to finish the job. The outlaws selected a sharp curve in the line and ran across a deep ravine and told their uh, captives that they were going to send the train and its occupants to hell. The bushrangers took over Glen Rowan without meeting resistance from the locals and imprisoned them at um, Anne Jones's Glen Rowan Inn, while the other hotel in uh, town, McDonald's Railway Hotel, was used to uh, stable the gang's stolen horses, one of which carried a tin of blasting powder and fuses, and their pack horses also carried suits of bullet-repelling armour, each complete with a helmet and weighing about 44 kilograms, 97 pounds. The gang made these suits with the intention of further robbing banks, the police had been, been informed by their spies about the armour, but dismissed them claims, dismissed the claims as tall tales. By Sunday afternoon, the gang had gathered a total of 62 hostages at the hotel. As the hours passed without any sight of the train, the gang insisted that drinks be provided to the townspeople and that music be played. 
They danced with hostages while the landlady's son sang bush ranger ballads, including one about the Kelly Gang. Dan and Byrne became fairly drunk. Ned, however, abstained from drinking and instead staged um, hop, step and jump and other games with the hostages, who were also encouraged by other bushrangers to amuse themselves with card games. One hostage later testified, they did, and Ned did not treat us badly, not at all. About 10pm, Ned, Ned and Byrne uh, captured Glenn Rowan's lone constable, Bracken, with the assistance of the hostages, Thomas uh, Cunlow, a local schoolmaster who sought to gain the gang's trust in order to thwart their plans. Believing that Kernow was a sympathiser, Ned let him and his wife return home, but warned them, go quietly to bed and do not dream too loud. As one of the gang would visit during the night back at the hotel, Kelly grew increasingly anxious over the train's non-arrival. The delay was caused by the fact that the policeman in Sherrod's hut waited until daylight to emerge and give the alarm, and news of the murder did not reach Melbourne until Sunday afternoon. Only at 1am on Monday did a police train carrying troopers, a native trackers and several journalists steam into Benella to collect reinforcements. Upon hearing the train's approach at 3am, Kurnow, despite Kelly's warning, rushed to the line and warned the pilot train to stop by raising a lit candle behind a red scarf. He told the driver of the uh, gang's plans. The trains then, um, then the train then slowly made their way to Glenrowan. Around this time, Kelly decided to let the townspeople return home, but Ann Jones told them to stay uh, to hear of the outlaws' lecture. Byrne interrupted the conversation, alerting the group about the train's arrival. The gang prepared for action and hurried to dress in their armour. Bracken, meanwhile, told the hostages to lie low and um, escaped the railway stations to explain the situation to the police. Superintendent Hare led six constables and five native trackers towards the hotel, where the armour-clad outlaws waited for them on the veranda. At this point, the police started the volley. The police and the gang fired um, at each other for about a quarter of an hour. During the lull, Superintendent Hare returned to the railway station with, the, with a shattered left wrist from one of the first shots fired. He bled profusely, and Tom Carrington, artist of the Australian sketcher, used his handkerchief to compress the wound. Hare then ordered O'Connor and his men to surround the hotel, and later attempted to return to the battle but gradually lost so much blood that he had to be sent to Benella for treatment. Kelly had been shot in the left elbow and the right foot, and later left the hotel undetected. The police, uh, trackers and civilian volunteers surrounded uh, the hotel throughout the night, and the firing continued intermittently. At about 5am, nine reinforcements under Superintendent Sadlier arrived from Benella, followed soon after by Sergeant Steele of Wangaratta. Sergeant Steele, what a great name. Followed soon by yeah, Sergeant Steele of Wangaratta, and six more policemen, for a total of about 30 men. Around this stage, Byrne made a toast while drinking whiskey at the bar, saying, many more years in the bush for the Kelly gang. 
Moments later, a stray bullet passed through the small gap in the armour and severed his femoral artery, and he bled out within minutes. Before daylight, Senior Constable Kelly found a revolving rifle and a silk cap lying in the bush, about a hundred yards uh, from the hotel. The rifle was covered with blood and a, uh, and a pool of blood lay near it. They believed it belonged to one of the bush rangers, hinting that they had escaped. They proved to be those of Ned Kelly himself, and at daybreak, the women and children among the hostages were allowed to depart. They were challenged as they approached the police line to uh, ensure that the outlaws were not attempting to escape in disguise. In the dim light of dawn, Kelly, dressed in his armour and armed with three handguns, rose out of the bush and attacked the police from their rear. Several members of the scattered police line returned fire, but to no effect. As Kelly had moved steadily through uh, the morning, missed towards the hotel. His armour repelled bullets. The size and shape of his armour made him appear inhuman to the police. His apparent invulnerability led to a shared state of superstitious awe. Constable Arthur, the first policeman to encounter Kelly, recalled, I was completely astonished and could not understand what uh, what the object I was firing at. One troop explained that it was a bunyip and could not be killed. A civilian volunteer cried out that it was the devil. Journalist uh, Tom Carrington wrote, With the steam rising from the ground, it looked for all the world like a ghost of Hamlet's father with no head, only a very long, thick neck. It was the most extraordinary sight I ever saw or would read of in my life and I felt fairly spellbound with wonder, and I could not stir or speak. Kelly laughed as he shot at the ta- and taunted the police, and called out to the remaining outlaws to recommence firing, which they did. This strange contest continued for almost ten minutes. Kelly, weakened by blood loss, managed to advance fifty or so yards, at uh, times stopping to change his weapons or regain his composure after taking a bullet to the armour. The sensation of being like blows from a man's fist. After diving to the ground to avoid one of Kelly's shots, Sergeant Steele realised that the figure's legs were unprotected. He shot at them twice with his shotgun, tearing apart Kelly's hip and thigh. The outlaw staggered, then collapsed against the fallen tree and moaned, I'm done. I'm done. Steele went to disarm him, but Kelly fired once more, blowing the sergeant's hat off uh, and burning the side of his face. Several others assisted Steele in removing the armour and expressed shock upon discovering that it was Kelly. He became quiet. Shot left in the foot, left leg, right hand, left arm, and twice in the region of the groin although no bullet had penetrated his armour. He was carried to the railway station, placed in the guard's van, and then taken to the station master's office, where doctors dressed his wounds. A monument marking the spot of the Kelly's capture. Uh, The place of the Kelly's capture has been commemorated by a small stone monument, the plaque inscribed with, early on a cold winter's morning, on Monday, June 28, 1880. 
seriously wounded Edward Ned Kelly finally fell at this place and was captured, brought down by Sergeant Steele, double-barreled shotgun fired from across a nearby creek. Now, in the meantime, the siege continued. It wasn't all, you know, game over because he was arrested. Uh, the female hostages confirmed that Dan and Hart were still alive in the hotel. They kept shooting from the rear of the building during the morning. At 10am, a white flag or handkerchief was held out at the front door, and immediately afterwards, about 30 male hostages emerged, while Dan and Hart defended the back door. Police ordered the hostages to lie down and were checked, one by one. Two of the hostages were arrested for being known Kelly sympathisers. By afternoon, Dan and Hart had ceased shooting, unwilling to allow his men to storm the hotel. Superintendent Sadlier telegraphed to Melbourne for an artillery cannon to be sent up by special train to obliterate the outlaws. A 12-pounder Armstrong gun made it as far as Seymour, when Sadlier decided to set fire to the hotel instead and received permission from the Chief uh, Secretary, Robert Ramsey, under cover of fire, Senior Constable Charles Johnson of Violettown placed a bundle of burning straw at the hotel's west side. Kate Kelly, Ned and Dan's sister appeared on the scene around this time. She endeavoured to make way to her brothers, but the police ordered her to stop. A light westerly wind carried the flames into the hotel and it rapidly caught a light. Matthew Gibney, a priest from the Western Australia, entered the burning structure in an attempt to rescue anyone inside. He discovered the bodies of Dan and Hart, who had uh, um, surmised that had committed suicide. Whether they died in a suicide pact or other means remains a mystery. Caught hours earlier uh, in police crossfire, hostages Martin Cherry, an old plate layer of the district, was found dying from a groin wound and promptly taken outside where Gibney gave him the last sacrament. Cherry succumbed within about half an hour. Other hostages, quarryman George Metcalf, was shot in the face and died with the wounds several months later. While he claimed it was an injury from the police fire, more recent research indicates that Ned accidentally shot him a day prior to the siege. During the siege, John Jones, son of the hotel's uh, landlady, was unintentionally shot by the police and died from the wound uh, the following day. His elder sister, Jane uh, Jones, also later succumbed to afflictions attributed to the police crossfire, bringing the civilian uh, deaths to four. Other three civilians were wounded by the police fire. Uh, Charles Rowan, a volunteer with the police, Michael Reardon, son of line uh, repairer, who tore up the tracks, a uh, uh, Bridget Reardon, mother's, uh, Michael's baby sister, an Aboriginal tracker who had a narrow escape with a bushranger's bullet grazing his forehead. A superintendent had uh, hair retired from the force following the shootout, and owing to his bullet wound, received an additional allowance of £100 per annum. All that remains standing of the hotel was a lamppost and a signboard. Burns' uh, body was strung up by Benella as a curiosity. His friends asked for the body, but the police instead uh, secretly interred it at, at night in an unmarked grave in Benella's cemetery. The charred remains of Dan and Hart were taken to, uh, to Greta and buried with their families in unmarked graves in the local cemetery, 30 kilometres, 19 miles, east of Benella.
Now, remember the part one. Actually, oddly enough, remember when we were just were doing, I was, there was the episode on Beechworth and the town, and there was that simple little story about a table and a lockbox. And the table and the lockbox were the only items to survive the, well, the, you know, the siege. Well, now you know why. The table was pushed outside because of the dancing. And the lockbox survived as well, just by you know, pure chance. And so now, of course, you you know the story. The full, honestly, tragic story. Kelly survived to stand trial on the 19th of October, 1880, in Melbourne before Sir Redmond Barry, the judge who had early sentenced Kelly's mother to three years in prison for attempted murder of Fitzpatrick. Mr. Smythe and Mr. Chomley appeared uh, for the Crown and Mr. Biden for the prisoner. The trial was adjourned to the 28th of October where Kelly was uh, presented on the charge of murder of Sergeant Kennedy, Constable Scanlon and Lonigan, the various bank robberies, the murder of Sherrod, resisting arrest at Glen Rowan with a long list of minor charges. He was convicted of willful murder of Lonigan and sentenced to death by hanging. After handing down the sentence, Barry concluded uh, with the customary words, May God have mercy on your soul. Which Kelly replied, I will go a little further than that and I will say, I'll see you there where I go. On the 3rd of November, the Executive Council of Victoria decided that Kelly was to be hanged eight days later, the 11th of November, at the old Melbourne jail. In the week leading up to the execution, thousands turned out at the street rallies across Melbourne, demanding a reprieve for Kelly, and on the 8th of November, a petition for clemency with over 32,000 signatures was presented to the government's private secretary. The executive order announced soon after that the hanging would proceed as scheduled. The day before his execution, Kelly and his photographic portrait was taken as a keepsake for his family, and he was granted a farewell interview with his relatives. His mother's last words to him were reported to be, Mind that you die like a Kelly. The following morning, John Castot, the government of the jail informed Kelly that the hour of execution had been fixed for 10 a.m. Kelly, leg irons were removed, and after a short time he was marched out. He was submissive on the way when passing the jail flower beds, remarked, what a nice little garden, but said nothing until he reached the press room, where he remained until uh, the arrival of the chaplain, Dean Donaghy. Accounts differ on Kelly's last words, some newspapers reported that it was such is life, while other newspapers recounted that uh, that was his response when Castro told him the uh, intended hour of the execution was earlier that day. The Argus wrote that Kelly's last words were, Ah, well, I suppose it has come to this, as a rope was placed around his neck. According to another account, Kelly intended to make a speech, but made no audible sound. The warden later wrote that Kelly, uh, when prompted to say his last words, mumbled something 
you know, indiscernible. On the 1st of October, 2012, I guess this is like the epilogue, the Victorian government issued a license for the Kelly Bones to be returned to the Kelly family, who made plans for his final burial. The family also appealed uh, for the person who possessed Kelly's skull to return it. On uh, 20th of January 2013, Kelly's relatives granted his final wish and buried his remains in a consecrated ground at Greta's cemetery near his mother's unmarked grave. A piece of Kelly's skull was also buried with his remains and was surrounded by concrete to prevent looting. The burial followed a requiem mass held on the 18th of January 2013 at St. Patrick's Cathedral Church in Wangaratta. During the Great Depression, the Bayside City Council built bluestone walls to protect the locals and local beaches from erosion. The stones were taken from the outer walls of the old Melbourne jail and included the headstone of the executed and buried in the grounds. Most, including Kelly's, were placed with the engravings, initials and date executions facing inwards. So that's the story. That is the man, the, the myth, the the legend, the the outlaw, the murderer, the hero. You decide. Um, yeah. And and it just it continues on today. Um, you know, debates, scholars, you name them, will will debate and 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 bring up all bits of evidence to prove one way or another. But he is, you know, he's the most famous criminal uh, in Australia. We've had a few. It's 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 odd how we were sort of, um, you know prop these people up, I guess, especially if they appear to be, you know, sympathizers for the hardworking people, but when I read out that, you know, that, that little thing at Beechworth, I thought, you know what, we need to tell this story, because for better or for worse, it's it's one of those um, key pivotal moments within inside of Australian history that really reflected the time, and my personal opinion, I, I, I you know what, he was he was a murderer. He murdered people. I think I think the time to which you actually do that is the time that you cross over and all right or wrong uh, that you may possess uh, all arguments just go out the window the moment you do that. Right? That's just that's just the way it is. Now I promise that the next comfy place is going to be a little more cheery. Um, full disclosure: when I you know went through this, I didn't actually think that it would get so. Dark, which is kind of stupid when I think about it out loud, because yeah, it did have a shootout, it did have a siege, uh, people were hurt. Anyway, it's going to be a lot more cheery going forward. So, yeah, thank you for listening. And if you're already asleep, well, good night. Sleep dreams. Take care.